And now for something completely different. It's... Say hello to my little friend! I bet you didn't see that coming. This is Glenn Peoples welcoming you to episode number 16 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. the Beretta Cast, the only podcast where you can slam dance to analytical philosophy and theology. You may recall that in the last episode, episode number 15, I said that I was imposing some new rules on myself. Uh, one of those is, is creating a new episode fortnightly rather than weekly, which I'm sticking to. I also said that I'd be trying to reduce the length of episodes to no more than 40 minutes. I'm not sure how long this one's going to be. Hopefully it'll be within that. We'll see. It's actually a paper that I'm beginning to put together in the hopes of getting it published somewhere in the near future. Uh, So we'll just see how long it takes. Hopefully it won't be too long, but hopefully you'll find it interesting as well. So without further ado, I guess we should just go ahead and begin. This episode is called the liberal theocracy. You may have heard the term liberal democracy. Well, this is called the liberal theocracy. A decade ago, about a decade ago, Robert Thigpen and Lyle Downing, Thigpen and Downing, sounds like a lawyer's firm, opened their word of warning to the world of political philosophy with with these portentous words. They said, and I quote, Theocracy is a major alternative to the liberal political order in the world today, as it was during the period that gave birth to liberalism. Any doubt about the danger in the United States from the threat of theocracy probably flows from uncertainty as to how far some are willing to go in promoting religious goals with state power. It's common knowledge, I think, anecdotally, that these writers are not alone in either implying or directly encouraging such fear. It is widely held that in in political philosophy the words liberal and religion do not make good bedfellows, and if we are interested in anything like liberalism, the thing we should be perhaps most afraid of is the notion of theocracy. Religion must be kept out of government, and the basis of both the government's mandate and the policies it makes must be free of entanglement with any theological beliefs. So imagine the horror, or perhaps the cognitive dissonance and confusion, that a liberal of this persuasion would have on hearing a title like the liberal theocracy. I want to draw particular attention to the claim made in this quotation that Theocracy was an alternative to liberal thought in the period that gave birth to liberalism, namely the period during which classical liberalism came into existence, and that that theocracy remains such an alternative today. I'm going to say that this claim is, is false, but that's a pretty moderate claim. I'm going to say more than that. This claim is very obviously false, if it is left unqualified, and that it is true, but just absolutely trivial if it is adequately qualified to avoid being false. Now, I actually want to claim more than this. Such claims as the one cited above are illustrative of 
a kind of hegemony, or is it hegemony? I'm never sure with some of these words. A kind of hegemony among many who write on, on religion and public life. Enough writers have reassured each other, maybe patted each other on the back over a beer, that they know all these words to be true, when in fact they know no such thing. Footnoting each other and producing a niche of academic material by referencing each other to create a self-generated culture of scholarship sustained by its own consensus on the fact that if anything is to be called really democratic or liberal, then it must be free from religious baggage. In spite of claims to be proponents of liberal democracy or any kind of democracy, what they have is an emperor, and he has no clothes. Now, whether or not... Um, whether or not any of what I say will suggest this larger claim to be true will have to be judged by others. But let me set about uh, making my case. So firstly, what is theocracy? Now I think that theocracy is just as slippery a term as democracy, which I think is quite a slippery term. Democracy could refer to a society where the citizens vote on every single piece of proposed legislation and the government merely ratified the will of the people. Doesn't, the government doesn't actually make any decisions at all. Rather than you know making the laws itself, it just says, what do the people want? Okay, we'll do that. That could be called democracy. That's certainly the rule of the people in some sense of the word. Um, just as worthy of the label democracy would be a society where the people elect leadership who they trust to uphold the Constitution. That's democracy, because the people choose the government. In some very broad sense, we might even consider as democratic a society where people elected a monarch believing that he really does know what is best for them. So they let him do whatever he wants, in the understanding that they could vote to depose him if they really want to. So that's still democracy, right? I mean, the people elect the leadership. They can elect to depose the leadership and choose new leadership. So that's democracy in some sense. The imagination provides, I think, many more examples of what could count as a, as a democracy. The term theocracy is just as capable of multiple understandings and applications. If God were to manifest in human form and to literally sit on a throne on earth and issue decrees like an earthly monarch then that would be a theocracy. So, for that matter, would a society in which the church relayed the will of God to humanity who followed the commands of the ecclesiastical leaders. Okay. The term could equally well apply to a state in which the government enforced the law, but the law was derived from a moral law that had a theological basis, such as the will of God a will that could be revealed in a number of potential ways, or maybe on some sort of scriptural revelation. In fact, as a matter of logical consequence, wouldn't any society count as a theocracy provided it is a society in which moral authority resides in God and morality is the basis of law? So taken as an unqualified claim, the statement that theocracy is an alternative to liberalism means that Theocracy in any form at all is incompatible with liberalism in any form at all. Now I think once it is realized that this is the claim in question, it will be obvious to anyone that the claim is just ludicrous. It's clearly false. 
But this is the claim in question. This claim is entailed in the words that I quoted at the start of this presentation. If you're not convinced that the claim is ludicrous, then just listen for a while. Having asked briefly what theocracy is, whether or not this claim is true depends now on what liberalism is. The term liberalism, in some contexts, especially in law, can be contrasted with the term moralism. Now this is understandable. Uh, moralism is the view in law that the state should restrict behavior just because it is seriously immoral. But liberalism as an alternative is the view that the state should only restrict behavior that interferes with people's rights or does them harm. Okay. Now this is just an unfortunate coincidence of language in political philosophy because it could give the very misleading impression that political liberalism doesn't have the goal of pursuing any moral ends or that it's not based on moral principles. Now, neither of those things is true. Liberalism is based on moral beliefs and it does enforce morality. Belief in human dignity and equality, the rightness of being fair, the virtue of treating others as we would like to be treated, all of these features of liberalism and more are moral claims of one sort or another. Political liberalism is, in recent times, often associated with a Rawlsian view of the proper role of the state. You know, that is to say, a view associated with John Rawls. And it's become associated with terms like the veil of ignorance, the original position, the circumstances of justice, and so forth, all ideas that, that we associate with John Rawls. That's not wrong, because a Rawlsian view of liberalism is liberalism of some sort. And the association is all the more understandable given that John Rawls's major work on the subject was called political liberalism. Other philosophers have contributed to a body of writing in support of a liberalism that is basically Rawlsian in nature. Stephen Macedo, I think, was correct to object to the portrayal of such liberalism as a view that bans moral precepts from the public square. He said, no, that's not really a fair way to present Rawlsian liberalism because it is a moral precept, or at least a cluster of such precepts. Stephen Macedo says, This charge is based on faulty premises. Liberal public reasonableness is itself a moral view, and not a political view that purports to be neutral towards moral views. Indeed, it is for moral reasons of fairness and civility that public reasonableness asks citizens to honour the authority of reasons that they can share in public with others. Now, Messina was not alone, as liberalism throughout is thoroughly moralistic in outlook, affirming that its foundations are moral facts that we have a duty to abide by. I cite here just a couple of examples of what anyone familiar with liberalism will recognize as a reflection of ordinary Rawlsian liberalism, as opposed to aberrations or exceptions. Charles Larimore, the, the political philosopher, grants that as far as methodology is concerned, Rawlsian liberalism is concerned with the cooperative use of reason, with justification and so forth, but that's not the end of the story. He says, and I quote, But we would badly misunderstand its nature if we supposed liberalism's guiding principles to consist simply in whatever might turn out to be common ground among the reasonable people, otherwise divided by their convictions. 
more fundamental than the political principles on which they will agree is the very commitment to organize political life along these lines, to seek principles that can be the object of reasonable agreement. This commitment forms the moral core of liberal thought, and it embodies a principle of respect for persons. Larmore complains, and rightly so, I think, that Rawls is not always clear about the nature of the moral basis of his version of liberalism. I think Rawls assumes a kind of moral foundation that he doesn't explicitly defend. Larmore, again, rightly in my view, says that this is the best way to understand liberalism. And I quote, If Rawls means that citizens should not regard their political principles as drawing on moral requirements whose validity is external to their collective will, then I believe Rawls goes wrong. Political liberalism makes sense only in light of an acknowledgement of such a higher moral authority. Now, the accusation of being wrong is only contingent. He says, if Rawls means, and in fact I think that Rawls, even though he says things that confuse the fact, does draw on such moral convictions. So modern Rawlsian liberalism is a moral outlook that enforces moral principles. Rawls's position was a highly idiosyncratic form of liberalism, and most liberals are not Rawlsians. Certainly, the period that gave birth to liberalism, that Thigpen and Dowling, uh, Downing refer to, was not an era in which Rawlsian liberalism had any following, because it, you know, Rawlsian liberalism wasn't going to exist for a few more centuries. You know, we're talking about the Enlightenment here. So what sort of liberalism was it that emerged from this period? The man sometimes termed the father of classical liberalism is, of course, John Locke. Classical liberalism, a position still cherished by many today, and one that I'm quite fond of myself, by the way, is amply explained in Locke's work on government, on morality, and on natural law. John Locke explained that the state has the task of representing rights that its citizens would legitimately have had with or without the state, but which are better protected by the state, acting as a representative of the citizens who band together to form society. This also means that the state has limits on its authority, since the state, as it does not create the rights that citizens have, but rather advocates or upholds them, cannot abridge those rights. I'm going to quote at length from John Locke, because it so perfectly encapsulates a classical liberal view of the limits of government. He says... Though the legislative, whether placed in one or more, whether it be always in being or only by intervals, and though it be the supreme power in every commonwealth, yet first it is not, nor can possibly be absolutely arbitrary over the lives and fortunes of the people. For it being but the joint power of every member of the society given up to that person or assembly which is legislator, it can be no more than those persons had in a state of nature before they entered into society and gave it up to the community. For nobody can transfer to another more power than he has in himself, and nobody has an absolute arbitrary power over himself or over any other to destroy his own life or take away the life or property of another. A man, has been as has been proved, 
cannot subject himself to the arbitrary power of another, and having in the state of nature no arbitrary power over the life, liberty, or possession of another, but only so much as the law of nature gave him for the preservation of himself and the rest of mankind, this is all he doth, or all he can, up to the commonwealth, and by it to the legislative power. So that the legislative can have no more than this, their power in the utmost bounds of it is limited to the public good of the society. Okay, let me translate. So for Locke, liberty and equality are not just things that the government should protect because we tend to have a preference for liberty and equality. In fact, some people don't embrace, embrace the principle of equality as I understand it. If the government should merely protect what the citizens want it to protect... The result, at least potentially, is a very large state with massive power or a state that arbitrarily invaded other nations to plunder resources or perhaps a state that executed people for petty theft, provided in each case this is the will of the people. No, says Locke, that's not appropriate. The duties of the state, in classical liberal thought, are objective duties that do not arise from the will of the governed or the government. It's a popular mistake to think that governing with the consent of the governed means just doing the will of the governed, doing whatever the people want. These two concepts are not the same. Look at Locke's claim, for example, that there are simply facts about which rights exist in nature and can be represented by the state. And even if a man wanted to have the right to kill himself or his fellow man, the state can't confer that right. He has no such right to ask the state to uphold in the first place. So for John Locke, rights are natural. And by that I don't mean they're non-supernatural. I don't mean that God doesn't generate these rights. I mean they exist in the world of facts. They exist prior to, rather than the result of, the acts of the government. The state does not bestow rights. It must recognize and protect existing rights. So that leaves us in an interesting position with respect to the question of the role of theological beliefs in classical liberalism. What the state has an obligation to uphold, according to classical liberalism, actually depends on what rights people really have. And whether or not certain theological claims are true, obviously has an important bearing on what rights people really have. If this is not obvious to you, at least it was very obvious to Locke and to other important thinkers in the history of liberal political philosophy. Throughout the post-Reformation political world, the liberal reaction was being seen more and more over against the belief in the divine right of kings. Civil rulers, this new movement insisted, have divinely ordained boundaries on their authority, and they may not require of men any more than God has permitted them to. Perhaps uh, nowhere was this more strongly expressed than in the Puritan political tradition, the political tradition that is closely associated with the founding of the New World. Uh, I'm quoting from Roger Williams here from his work, The Bloody Tenet of Persecution. He says, Civil magistrates have power to publish and apply such civil laws in a state as either are 
expressed in the word of God in Moses' judicials, to wit, so far as they are of general and moral equity, and so binding all nations in all ages, or are to be deduced by way of general consequence and proportion from the word of God. For in a free state, no magistrate hath power over the bodies, goods, lands, liberties of a free people, but by their free consent. And because free men are not free lords of their own estates, but only stewards under God, therefore they may not give their free consent to any magistrate to dispose of their bodies, goods, lands, liberties at large, as themselves please, but as God, the sovereign lord of all, alone. And because the word is a perfect rule, as well as as well of righteousness as of holiness, it will therefore be necessary that neither the people give consent, nor that the magistrate take power to dispose of the bodies, goods, lands, liberties of the people, but according to the laws and rules of the word of God. Now you might be listening to this objecting already. Okay, now while you might, you might say, while classical liberals advocated that same conclusion, that the state should have carefully limited powers, people like John Locke did not use such directly religious language as the Puritan thinkers. Instead of continual reference to the law of God, Locke, you might be saying, spoke more frequently about the law of nature, or natural law. Okay, that's a good objection. So, let's look at the law of nature in Locke and others to ask if it really is a secular idea or a religious one. In classical liberal thought, what rights do people actually have, and what are those rights based on? You've heard one reference already in Locke to the law of nature. That's a very common, common point of reference in classical liberal writing, the law of nature. John Locke's understanding of the law of nature, insofar as it is, it's of any interest to this presentation, is unambiguous. It is not something generated by reason, even if it is something recognizable by reason, nor is it something generated by consensus or cooperative deliberation in some sort of modern Rawlsian sense. It is objective. That is, it is out there in the world of brute facts, as for Locke is God. Reason, when it is at its best, serves as what Locke called the candle of the Lord, the gift of God enabling us to illuminate those truths of the law of nature that are out there to be seen. The law of nature is something that has its origin in the will of God. Reflecting the teleological nature of creation, that is, uh, having been made for a purpose and with a proper function, which is con constitutive of the basis of moral law. In fact, Locke says, the reason it should be so obvious to all that God exists is the fact that there is any moral law at all. He says, since God shows himself to us present everywhere and as it were, forces himself upon the eyes of men, as much in the fixed course of nature now as by the frequent evidence of miracle in times past. I assume that there will be no one to deny the existence of God, provided he recognizes either the necessity for some rational account of our life, or that there is a thing that deserves to be called virtue or vice. 
It seems just, therefore, to inquire whether man alone has come into the world altogether exempt from any law applicable to himself, without a plan, rule, or any pattern of his life. No one will easily believe this, who has reflected upon Almighty God or the unvarying consensus of the whole of mankind at every time and in every place, or even upon himself or his conscience. There is no room in Locke for any conception of natural law that is not the law of God revealed through creation and reason. He says, and I quote, This law of nature can be described as being the decree of the divine will discernible by the light of nature and indicating what is and, and what is not in conformity with a rational nature, and for this very reason commanding or prohibiting. It appears to me less correctly termed by some the dictate of reason, since reason does not so much establish and pronounce this law of nature as search for it and discover it as a law enacted by a superior power and implanted in our hearts. It's noteworthy that Locke cautions against the terminology that might be used in calling natural law the dictate of reason, because, as he says here, um, reason does not generate natural law, but discovers it as part of the world in which we live. This attitude of Locke to the relationship between reason and natural law is actually lost on many contemporary liberal admirers of Locke. Morality itself, for Locke, is grounded in the decree of God who created us. This is fundamental for his understanding of human rights and duties. I'll quote from him again. The state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone, and reason, which is that law, teaches all mankind who will but consult it, that all being equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions, for men being all the workmanship of one omnipotent and infinitely wise maker, all the servants of one sovereign master, sent into the world by his order and about his business, they are his property, whose workmanship they are to last during his, not one another's, pleasure. And being furnished with like faculties, sharing all in one community of nature, there cannot be supposed any such subordination among us that may authorize us to destroy one another, as if we were made for one another's uses, as the inferior ranks of creatures are for ours. So, the basis of the duties that we have towards one another is grounded in our duty to God on the basis of God's ownership of us as His workmanship. And for that reason, it's, it's somewhat frustrating for anyone who has realized this to see the common revisionist treatments of Locke, claiming that he saw human rights as grounded in self-ownership. I mean, you reflect on what you've just heard, and then, then ask yourself, is that self-ownership? Do a Google search for the name John Locke with the phrase self-ownership to see what I mean. Libertarian bloggers are usually the worst offenders, seeking to hijack the history, the history of philosophy for their cause, and they simply end up riding roughshod over the nuances of Locke's position as he himself explained it. Any ownership, in Locke's view, that we have of ourselves 
is subordinate to the ultimate ownership of God as our maker. It's like the way that I have a right to the house that I am renting. Even if I do not have absolute liberty to do as I please with it, it's my property in one sense, but not in another. It's the property of my landlord. So actually, Locke's views on the limits of government, uh, limits of government power, sorry, were not so different from the Puritan outlook cited earlier. Um, Richard Mao, uh, that's M O U W Mao, not Mao Zedong is correct to observe that any work that might be published today advancing any suggestion that Locke's arguments were not theologically driven, or any thought that they, those arguments could stand up without the theological backbone that Locke gives them, are exemplified in his view of natural law, sorry, as exemplified in his view of natural law, are really just out of touch, and they're perpetuating that which is tasteful to Locke's secular admirers, but just will not do. The time during which one might have gotten away with, the, with that toning down approach to Locke is long gone. Now, nobody so much bats an eyelid when a historian like John Diggins refers in passing to Abraham Lincoln, holding to what he calls, quote, the Lockean tradition, uh, sorry, the Lockean Calvinist tradition, end quote. So religious was Locke's approach to um, to philosophy and and to political philosophy in particular. For Locke, then, the limit on legitimate government is, in a nutshell, government cannot require of citizens what the law of nature, that is, the law of God, does not require, nor, one would think was a natural corollary of this claim, may the state prohibit what God would not or has not prohibited. In fact, even if citizens desire the government to have more power over them than this, such power is not theirs to give the state. It belongs only to God. So convinced was Locke that God was the bedrock of morality and natural law that he went so far as to say that atheism is something that a good society does not tolerate, for it undermines morality itself, and ipso facto it renders one a bad citizen. So what about other historic liberal thinkers and their stance on the law of nature? We've had a look at Locke. What about the others? Did they too see this as a divine law to which we are all subject and which must determine the limits of governmental authority? Well, I'll look at a couple of other examples. Algernon Sidney is a pretty formative thinker in classical liberalism. In Sidney's master work, uh, discourses concerning government, he uses the phrase law of God, but he almost never uses it without adding and nature, showing that for Sydney the law of God is the law of God in nature, and there is no point where one ends and the other begins. It's one law, one set of laws, and it, it's the law of God in nature. Where he does refer to them separately, it's clear that he does so not to suggest that their content is different, or that the law of nature does not directly depend on God for its content, as in the case where he condemns certain actions as being not according to the law of God, nor to the law of nature, which cannot differ from it. So the laws are actually identical, because one cannot differ from the other. Another well-known classical liberal thinker is Montesquieu, and I'm never quite sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it because it's the only way I know um, 
philosopher and historian Michael Zuckert, I think he was an historian, he was at least a philosopher, is at least a philosopher, he claims that in Montesquieu, just as in Locke, the ultimate standard of right and the bedrock of political morality is not in the natural law at all, but rather in the fact of self-ownership. In fact, he goes so far as to partially endorse uh, the claim of Huliung, I think that's how you say it, Huliung's claim that in the view of Montesquieu um, and Locke, quote, both the Christian deity and the law of nature were expendable as methods of condemning evil. Now this is hopelessly wrong, I think. It's quite obviously wrong in the case of Locke, for whom the law of God was a reflection of the will of the sorry, the, the law of nature was a reflection of the will of the Christian deity, and who saw the natural law as that which identifies right and wrong. Now how could evil be condemned given that the view of natural law sorry, given this view of natural law, if we jettison the very thing that is supposed to identify what is evil and what is not? So he's wrong about Locke, and I think he's wrong about Montesquieu as well. In support of this claim that Montesquieu viewed the law of nature as expendable, and that it didn't provide the foundation for the kind of moral judgments upon which civil laws should rest, Zuckert says that according to Montesquieu, quote, the, law the, the, <laughs> the law of nature is not normative in its own terms, although it may have some normative implications, end quote. And he supports this claim about Montesquieu, not by quoting Montesquieu, but by simply listing a reference for the reader to investigate for herself, namely Book 26, Chapters 3 to 5 of Montesquieu's major work that I referenced just earlier. It's a bit like, yeah, it's a bit like a fundamentalist Christian who makes a claim and leaves a Bible verse reference as his proof. It doesn't actually tell you what the Bible verse says, but just leaves the reference there. Um, it's very doubtful that this is what Montesquieu meant in those chapters. They are essentially chapters dealing with scenarios where there is or appears to be a conflict between what we would ordinarily take to be a duty according to the law of nature and the appropriate civil law to establish. In chapters 3 and 4, he lists a number of cases in which he judges that civil laws were passed that were contrary to the law of nature. And so those civil laws were unjust. If this tells us anything about the relationship between civil law and natural law in Montesquieu, it strongly suggests that he believed that natural law is normative for civil law, contrary to what Zuckert claimed. In fact, at the end of chapter 4, after considering one case that he thought to be particularly unjust, Montesquieu declared, and I quote, how iniquitous, that is, how wicked and sinful, how iniquitous the law which, to preserve a purity of morals, overturns nature, the origin, the source of all morality. End quote. How, then, could it be reasonably claimed that for Montesquieu the law of nature is not morally normative? Clearly it's morally normative. Zuckert's comment seems to be an interpretation of chapter 5, called cases in which we may judge by the principles of the civil law in limiting the principles of the law of nature, end quote. Now, based simply on the chapter's title, you might be forgiven for believing that, one, that uh, the chapter had dealt with the practice of opposing the law of nature with civil law, as, as Zuckert says. 
However, given that it immediately follows Montesquieu's claim that any law that overturns the law of nature is iniquitous, such an interpretation is very dubious. In this chapter, actually, Montesquieu cites only one law as follows, one particular law. He says, An Athenian law obliged children to provide for their fathers when fallen into poverty. It accepted those who were born of a courtesan, those whose chastity had been infamously prostituted by their father, and those to whom he had not given any means of gaining a livelihood. Now, Montesquieu himself considered that a child had a duty, according to nature, to provide for his father if needed, and therefore he considered that this law provided an exception to his natural duty. But whether he thought that this was so because the law of nature was not binding in the three sets of circumstances outlined by this law is not obvious. In fact, I think that's not the case at all. Have, have a listen to how Montesquieu evaluated this law. He said, The law considered that in the first case, the father being uncertain, he had rendered the natural obligation precarious. That's when the child was born to a courtesan. That in the second, he had sullied the life he had given, and done the greatest injury he could do to his children in depriving them of their reputation. And in the third, he had rendered insupportable a life which had no means of subsistence. Subsistence. The law suspended the natural obligation of children because the father had violated his. It looked upon the father and the son as no more than two citizens, and determined in respect to them only from civil and political views, even considering that a good republic ought to have a particular regard to manners. I am apt to think that Solon's law was a wise regulation in the first two cases, whether that in which nature had left the son in ignorance, sorry, had left the son in ignorance with regard to his father, or that in which she even seems to ordain he should not own him, but it cannot be approved with respect to the third, where the father had only violated a civil institution. Now, did you follow all that? Montesquieu accepts that there are cases where people need not meet what would normally be natural obligations, but this is only the case where others have failed to meet their natural obligations. Okay. He actually says that the law of nature, or nature personified in this case, seems to ordain that the son should not own the father. So he says that this is natural law. It's an exception to ordinary natural laws, uh, and that exception is generated by the fact that someone else has violated natural law. Okay, for example, a believer in normative natural law would say that we have a natural obligation not to kill one another, but it doesn't follow from this that we have a natural obligation not to execute a murderer who has violated his natural duty. In other words, what would ordinarily be considered natural evils, that is, violations of natural law, become required sometimes in response to natural evils. Montesquieu's work does not deal much with what natural law is, or whence it arises, but he does begin his work by spelling this out, laying the foundation at the beginning for every reference that he later makes to the law of nature. He appeals to the law of nature later as entailing moral requirements, but at the very outset, 
he explains that all requirements of the law come from the author of the law of nature, God. He says, Laws, in their most general signification, are the necessary relations arising from the nature of things. In this sense, all beings have their laws. The deity, his laws. The material world, its laws. The intelligence superior to man, their laws. The beasts, their laws. Man, his laws. They who assert that a blind fatality produce the various effects we behold in this world, talk very absurdly. For can any thing be more unreasonable than to pretend that a blind fatality could be productive of intelligent beings? There is then a primitive reason. And laws are the relations subsisting between it and different beings, and the relations of these to one another. God is related to the universe as creator and preserver. The laws by which he created all things are those by which he preserves them. He acts according to these rules because he knows them. He knows them because he made them, and he made them because they are relative to his wisdom and power. Since we observe that the world, though formed by the motion of matter, and void of understanding, subsists through so long a succession of ages, its motions must certainly be directed by invariable laws, and could we imagine another world, it must also have constant rules, or it would inevitably perish. Thus, the creation, which seems arbitrary in act, supposeth, supposeth laws as invariable as those of the fatality of the atheists. It would be absurd to say that the Creator might govern the world without those rules, since without them it could not subsist. These rules are a fixed and invariable relation. In bodies moved, the motion is received, increased, diminished, lost, according to the relations of the quantity of matter and velocity. Each diversity is uniformity, each change is constancy. Particular intelligent beings may have laws of their own making, but they have some likewise which they never made. Before they were intelligent beings, they were possible. They had therefore possible relations and consequently possible laws. Before laws were made, there were relations of possible justice. To say that there is nothing just or unjust but what is commanded or forbidden by positive laws is the same as saying that before the describing of a circle, all the radii were not equal. His last words are worthy of particular note. To suppose that justice and injustice did not exist until men made laws determining what is just and what is unjust is just as absurd, he says, as supposing that prior to geometrical principles being formulated they were not binding, and a circle could have radii of different lengths. How ridiculous, he supposes, and rightly so. The clear implication of this is that human lawmaking does not create standards of justice or morality, but rather is supposed to conform to them. Human beings have some laws that they create, but there are basic laws that no human or human society created. We see a comment like this uh, in Grotius as well, which I won't go into just here, implying that God cannot change the law of nature. Montesquieu says that God cannot govern the natural world without the laws of nature that we now have, not because they weren't dependent on God for their existence, in fact, as you've just heard, they were directly dependent on God for their existence and content, 
but because without them, without these laws, the world that we know would not exist to be governed at all. That's why God requires them in order to govern the world. Montesquieu later speaks of natural law not just in terms of the laws of science, but more broadly as the laws of God governing everything in creation, including human conduct. Unlike Locke, he was more willing to speak of man's failing to live up to those laws, not simply due to a lack of intelligence or reason, but due to a direct transgression of God's laws, sin. He says, Man, as a physical being, is like other bodies governed by invariable laws. As an intelligent being, he incessantly transgresses the laws established by God and changes those of his own instituting. He is left to his private direction, though a limited being and subject, like all finite intelligences, to ignorance and error. Even his imperfect knowledge he loseth, and as a sensible creature he is hurried away by a thousand impetuous passions. Such a being might every instant forget his creator God oh, sorry, such a being might every instant forget his creator. God has therefore reminded him of his duty by the laws of religion. Notice that reminded him of those duties by the laws of religion. Such a being is liable every moment to forget himself. Philosophy has provided against this by the laws of morality. Formed to live in society, he might forget his fellow creatures. Legislators have, therefore, by political and civil laws, confined him to his duty. So notice that. He has all these things to remind him of his duties according to the law of nature. He has the laws of religion. He has civil laws. He has uh, philosophical ethics. All of these things remind him of his natural duties. While Montesquieu did not set out to write about theology, but jurisprudence, he wrote about law more than anything else. And so his comments about the metaphysics of law are sparse, sorry, the metaphysics of natural law, I mean. On those rare occasions where he actually spoke directly about the subject, we see some very familiar themes appearing. He says, antecedent to the above-mentioned laws are those laws of nature, so-called because they derive their force entirely from our frame and existence. In order to have a perfect knowledge of these laws, we must consider man before the establishment of society. The laws received in such a state would be those of nature. The law which, impressing on our minds the idea of a creator, inclines us toward him, is the first in importance, though not in order, of natural laws. Okay. The view expressed in Scripture, in Calvin, as well as in Locke, and here in Montesquieu, that the most important of natural laws is that which inclines us to God, our Creator. God created the laws of nature which should be reflected in civil laws, and, for that matter, in religious laws. And he also created religion to remind us explicitly of our duty to God. In Montesquieu, then, there is no hope of finding a godless theory of natural law any more than in, say, John Locke or Sidney Algernon. Algernon Sidney, sorry. I'm not going to multiply examples. That would take a long time. I've drawn some of this material from a seminar that I presented to the University of Otago Philosophy Department called 
Liberalism and Natural Law. And the transcript of this seminar is at the Beretta website in the philosophy article section for anyone who might be interested in looking further into that. What I can say as a fair overview, however, is that the political thinkers of the period that gave birth to classical liberalism in general construed the law of nature which guided and limited the role of the state as something that is not theologically neutral. It reflects the will of God, the creator of the universe, and to say that something is wrong in the eyes of God is to say that it violates the law of nature. For God is the author of nature, and it was made to function as God intended. So where does this classical liberal position leave us on the question of theocracy? Remember, theocracy is any system in which society is governed according to rules that come from God. I think I've referred to this in an earlier podcast on equality, but it's relevant here, so I'll mention this again. Political philosopher Jeremy Waldron, in his outstanding work on John Locke and the Liberal Doctrine of Equality, recalls listening to the Carlyle Lectures at Oxford in 1982, presented by well-known philosopher Alistair McIntyre, and being struck by his claim that, and this is Waldron's recollection now, as he read through the true treatise, as he read the two treatises of government, the arguments of John Locke concerning basic equality and individual rights were so imbued with religious content that they were not fit constitutionally to be taught in the public schools of the United States of America, end quote. I disagree with McIntyre, as I think it's a fairly recent and mistaken rereading of the American Constitution to think that, it's a, that it forbids all religious presuppositions from being, uh, sorry, from holding sway in the public square. But if one did think that, then McIntyre's reaction is understandable. How can a society's very foundational principles be grounded in theology? if that society is supposed to be one that is religiously neutral and religion is not a suitable ground for principles of law and politics. For the rich liberal natural law tradition, when providing an answer to many important questions like abortion, the death penalty, religious toleration, and any issue where moral underpinnings determine law, theology is never far away. Just what rights a person actually has, or what is in accord with natural law, is a virtually irresolvable dispute between people who start from fundamentally different metaphysical presuppositions. Could you still be a liberal and reject this tradition as metaphysical mumbo-jumbo? Yes, you certainly could. But only the most die-hard revisionist would dream of thinking that an approach like this is reflective of all liberalism historically. You might think that I'm oversimplifying historic liberalism. It's not true, you might think, that morality necessarily translated into law. Actually, you might say there was no attempt to simply legislate the moral law. Maybe not. I haven't said that there was. Many moral duties were not advocated as good candidates for legal, uh, legally enforceable duties. Go to church every week. Don't insult people. Thank your grocer when you go shopping. I think those are all moral duties. But Whatever precepts were to be legislated were deemed such because of their moral status. Not all moral principles became law, 
but the moral status of those things that did become law was only such because of God and some feature of God's relationship to the world. So as an unqualified claim, it is not true that liberal democracy is always an alternative to theocracy or vice versa. It might be an alternative to certain forms of theocracy, for example, an ecclesiocracy where the church and state unite and the established church claims citizens as its members and it administers the law. But to say that liberal democratic society, especially liberalism of the period that gave rise to the movement of that name, is at odds with everything that deserves the name theocracy is just not true. A society based on divine law is exactly what many thinkers in this movement advocated. It's possible that modern liberals who think otherwise are just appealing to the fact that Enlightenment liberals emphasize the role of reason. And since, as we all know, religious beliefs are not compatible with reason that had no religious content. Now that's not history, it's just bigotry. But what if the likes of Thigpen and Downing were to qualify their comments? What if they didn't mean that all forms of liberal democracy are, are incompatible with all forms of theocracy? Maybe they meant that a government that has no interest in reason, but which enforces only the will of the religious leaders, whatever their will might be, is incompatible with a proper liberal democracy. Well, if that's what they mean, then big whoop-de-doo. In liberal debates about political philosophy and the role of uh, religious convictions, Nobody even advocates a position as absurd as that. I think that it is rhetorically wise, though philosophically rather bad form, that those who uttered the portentous words, perhaps pretentious words, quoted at the outset of this presentation, simply chose not to define this nebulous thing called the theocracy that they referred to. So, by not defining it, they avoided, cleverly avoided, the effort of showing that their claim is actually true, and they avoided the embarrassment of seeing that they were attacking a position that none of their peers actually holds anyway. So, drawing all these things together, if the lines of argument here, the historical examples, don't seem very long or complicated, it's because I don't think the issue is a, is a very complicated one. It is false that theocracy is an alternative to liberalism and democracy or either, or to a liberal democracy. But there is still a way to resurrect the claim, namely by making it in a carefully nuanced way that Thigpen and Downing did not. Perhaps we should say that a particular type of theocracy is incompatible with a particular type of democracy or liberal state, but that becomes trivial, because a flat tax is incompatible with certain types of liberalism as well. But that doesn't mean that a flat tax is an alternative to liberalism. So there I draw that presentation to a close. Uh, my summary, in case you can't tell what it is, is that theocracy is not incompatible with democracy or liberalism. In fact, I think that the model that I would advocate is what I call the liberal theocracy. And as I feared, this episode ended up being rather long, about 55 minutes currently and counting, so I'll probably come back to a shorter episode next time, and there's no time for anything else in today's episode other than for me to say farewell, thanks for listening, and please do come back in a couple of weeks' time for another fine episode of... Shit!